Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. This episode of Communia Sanctorum is Part 3 in our series on the Crusades. A major result of the First Crusade was a further alienation of the Eastern and Western churches. The help provided Byzantium by the Crusaders was not what the Eastern Emperor Alexius was hoping for. It also resulted in an even greater alienation of the Muslims than had been in place before. Two hundred years of crusading rampages across the eastern Mediterranean permanently poisoned Muslim-Christian relations and ended the spirit of moderate tolerance for Christians living under Muslim rule across a wide swath of territory. The only people who welcomed the crusaders were a handful of Christian minorities who'd suffered under the Byzantine and Muslim rule that is, the Armenians and the Maronites living in Lebanon. The cops in Egypt saw the Crusades as a calamity. They were now suspected by Muslims of holding Western sympathies while being treated as schismatics by the Western Church. Once the Crusaders took Jerusalem, they banned cops from making pilgrimages there. Things really went sour between East and West when the Roman Church installed Latin patriarchates in historically Eastern centers at Antioch and Jerusalem. Then during the Fourth Crusade, a Latin patriarch was appointed to the church in Constantinople itself. To give you an idea of what this would have felt like to the Christians of Constantinople, imagine how the Southern Baptists would feel if a Mormon bishop was installed as the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Yeah, you get the picture. No bueno. Another long-lasting effect of the Crusades was that they weakened the Byzantine Empire and hastened its fall to the Ottoman Turks a couple of centuries later. Arab governments were also destabilized, leaving them susceptible to invasion by Turks and Mongols. A significant new development in monastic history was made at this time in the rise of the knightly monastic orders. The first of these was the Knights Templar, founded in 1118 under Hugh de Pienz. Founded in 1118 under Hugh de Paines, King Baldwin gave the Templars their name, and from them the idea of fighting for the temple passed to the other orders. Bernard de Clairvaux, although not the author of the Templar rule, as legend has it, did write an influential piece called In Praise of the New Militia of Christ, which lauded the new orders of knights. The Templars were imitated by the Hospitallers, who had an even earlier origin as a charitable order. They'd organized in 1050 by merchants from Amalfi living in Jerusalem to protect pilgrims. They provided hospitality and care of the sick and helped morph the word hospitality into hospital. Under Gerard in 1120, the hospitalers gained papal sanction. Gerard's successor was Ramon de Provence, who reorganized the Hospitallers as a military order on the pattern of the Knights Templar. The Hospitallers, also known as the Knights of St. John, eventually moved to the island of Rhodes and then Malta, where they held out in 1565 in a protracted siege against the Turks in one of history's most significant battles. Another important military order, the Teutonic Knights, arose in 1199 during the Third Crusade. The knightly monastic orders had certain features in common. They viewed warfare as a devotional way of life. The old monastic idea of fighting demons, as seen in the ancient Egyptian desert hermits, evolved into actual combat with people cast as the agents of evil. Spiritual warfare became actual battle. 
Knights and their attendants took vows similar to other monks. They professed poverty, chastity, and obedience along with a pledge to defend others by a force of arms. While personal poverty was vowed, using violence to secure wealth was deemed proper so that it could be used to benefit others, including the order itself. The Templars became an object of envy for their immense wealth. In studying the relations between Christianity and Islam during the Middle Ages, we should remember that there were many peaceful interchanges. Some Christians advocated peaceful missions to the Muslims. These peaceful encounters can be seen in the exchange of art. Christians highly valued Muslim metalwork and textiles. Church vestments were often made by Muslim weavers. Such a vestment is located today in Canterbury. It contains Arabic script saying, Great is Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. If there was anything positive to be gleaned from the Crusades, it did promote a greater sense of unity in Western Europe. Remember that one of the reasons Pope Urban sparked the First Crusade was to vent the violent habits of the European nobles who were constantly at each other's throats. Instead of warring with each other back and forth across Europe, watering its fields with blood, they united to go against infidels way over there. The Crusades also led to increased prestige for the papacy as they were able to mobilize huge numbers of people. The Crusades also stimulated an intellectual revival in Europe as Crusaders returned with new experiences and knowledge from another part of the world. After the First Crusade, over the next 60 years, Jerusalem saw a succession of weak rulers while the Muslims from Damascus to Egypt united under a new dynasty of competent and charismatic leaders. The last of these was Saladin, or more properly, Salah ad-Din, founder of the Ayyubid dynasty of Islam. He became caliph in 1174 and set out to retake Jerusalem. The king of Jerusalem at that time, and warning, I'm going to butcher this poor guy's name, was Guy de Luzon. Let's just call him Guy. He led the crusaders out to a hill on the west of the Sea of Galilee called the Horns of Hattin. Both the Templars and the Hospitallers were there in force, and the much-vaunted true cross was carried by the Bishop of Acre, who himself was clad in a knight's armor. On July 5th of 1187, the decisive battle was fought. The Crusaders were completely routed. 30,000 of them perished. King Guy, the leaders of the Templars and Hospitallers, along with a few other nobles, were taken prisoner. Saladin gave them clemency. The fate of the Holy Land was now decided. On October 2nd of 1187, Saladin entered Jerusalem after it made brave resistance. The generous conditions of surrender were mostly creditable to the chivalry of the Muslim commander. There were no scenes of savage butchery as followed the entry of the Crusaders 90 years before. The people of Jerusalem were given their liberty if they paid a ransom. Europeans, and anyone else who wanted to, were allowed to leave. For 40 days, the procession of the departing continued. Relics stored in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre were redeemed for the sum of 50,000 Byzants, named after Byzantium, where the Byzant was the medium of exchange, a gold coin weighing five grams. Thus ended the Latin Kingdom of Jerusalem. Since then, the worship of Islam has continued on Mount Moriah without interruption. The other European conquests of the First Crusade were then in danger from the unending feuds of the Crusaders themselves. And in spite of the constant flow of recruits and treasure from Europe, they fell easily before Saladin.
he allowed a merely ceremonial Latin ruler to hold the title of King of Jerusalem, but the last real king was Guy, who was released and then traveled around claiming the title of king, but without a court or capital. He eventually settled in Cyprus. We'll go into less detail for the rest of the Crusades as we finish them off over the next episode. The Second Crusade was sparked by two events, the fall of the Crusader state of Edessa in Syria and the preaching of Bernard of Clairvaux. And note that the Second Crusade took place before the arrival of Saladin on the scene. Edessa fell to the Turks in December of 1144. They built a fire in a large breach that they had made in the city wall, and that fire was so hot that it cracked a section of the wall a hundred yards long. When the wall collapsed, the Turks rushed in and unleashed the same kind of brutality that the Crusaders had when they conquered Jerusalem. Pope Eugenius III saw the Turk victory at Edessa as a threat to the continuance of the Crusaders in Palestine and called upon the King of France to march to their relief. The forgiveness of all sins and immediate entrance into heaven were promised to all embarking on a new crusade. Eugenius summoned Bernard of Clairvaux to leave his abbey and preach the crusade. Bernard was the most famous person of his time, and this call by the Pope came at the zenith of his fame. He regarded the Pope's summons as a call from God. On Easter in 1146, King Louis of France vowed to lead the crusade. The Pope's promise of the remission of sins was dear to him as he was stricken with guilt for having burned a church with 1,300 inside. How grand to be able to gain forgiveness by killing more. He assembled a council at Vézelay, at which Bernard made such an overpowering impression by his message that all present pressed forward to take up the crusading cause. Bernard was obliged to cut his own robe into small fragments to give away to all who wanted something of his that they could carry to the east. He wrote to Pope Eugenius that the enthusiasm was so great, quote, castles and towns were emptied of their inmates. One man could hardly be found for seven women, and the women were being everywhere widowed while their husbands were still alive, unquote. Meaning that most of the men set off on the crusade, leaving the population of France with seven women to every man. <laughs> lucky them. From France, Bernard went to Basel in modern-day Switzerland, then up through the cities of the Rhine as far as Cologne. As in the First Crusade, persecution broke out against the Jews in this area when a monk named Rodulf questioned why they needed to go to the Middle East to get rid of the God-haters and Christ-killers. There were plenty of them in Europe. Bernard objected vehemently to this. He called for the church to attempt to win the Jews by discussion and respect, not killing them. Bernard was the celebrity of the day, and thousands flocked to hear him. Several notable miracles and healings were attributed to him. The German Emperor Conrad III was so deeply moved by his preaching and convinced to throw in his weight to the crusade. Conrad raised an army of 70,000, a tenth of whom were knights. They assembled at Regensburg and proceeded through Hungary to the Bosporus. All along their route, they were less than welcome. Conrad and the Eastern Emperor Manuel were brothers-in-law, but that didn't keep Manuel from doing his best to wipe out the German force. The guides that he provided led the Germans into ambushes and traps, then abandoned them in the mountains. When they finally arrived at Nicaea, famine, fever, and attacks had reduced the force to a tenth of its original size. King Louis set out in the spring of 1147 and followed the same route that Conrad had taken. 
His queen, Eleanor, famed for her beauty and skill as a leader, along with many other ladies of the French court, accompanied the army. The French met up with what was left of Conrad's force at Nicaea. The forces then split into different groups, which all reached Acre in 1148. They met King Baldwin III of Jerusalem and pledged to unite their forces in an attempt to conquer Damascus before retaking Edessa. The siege of Damascus, it was a total failure. The European nobles fell to such infighting that their camp fragmented into warring groups. Conrad left for Germany in the fall of 1148 and Louis returned to France just a few months later. Bernard was humiliated by the failure of this crusade. He assigned it to the judgment of God for the sins of the crusaders in the Christian world. But a little more about King Louis's wife, Eleanor. Eleanor of Aquitaine, well, she was really something. In a world dominated by men, Eleanor's career was something special. She was one of the wealthiest and most powerful people in Europe during the entire Middle Ages. Eleanor succeeded her father as the ruler of Aquitaine and Poitiers at the age of 15. She was then the most eligible bride in Europe. Three months after her accession, she married King Louis VII. As Queen of France, she went on the Second Crusade. Then, with its defeat and back in France, she got an annulment from Louis on the basis that they were relatives. Then she married Henry Plantagenet, the Duke of Normandy, and the Count of Anjou, who soon became King Henry II of England in 1154. This despite the fact that Henry was an even closer relative than Louis had been, and nine years younger than she was. They were married just eight weeks after her annulment. Over the next 13 years, Eleanor bore Henry eight children, five sons, three of whom would become king and three daughters. However, Henry and Eleanor eventually became estranged. She was imprisoned between 1173 and 89 for supporting her son's revolt against her husband. Eleanor was widowed in July of 1189. Her husband was succeeded by their son, Richard I, known as the Lionhearted. As soon as he ascended the throne, Richard had his mother released from prison. Now the Queen Dowager, Eleanor acted as regent while Richard went on the Third Crusade. She survived Richard and lived well into the reign of her youngest son, John, known as the worst king in England's long history. It's this King John who's cast as the chief villain in the story of Robin Hood, and he's the only one named John of all the kings of England because he was so bad no one else would take the name. The Third Crusade is referred to as the King's Crusade due to the European monarchs who participated in it. It was an attempt to reconquer the Holy Land from the Muslims who, under Saladin, had reclaimed the lands the Crusaders took in the First Crusade. The Third was, for the most part, successful, but fell short of its ultimate goal, which was, of course, the reconquest of Jerusalem. When Saladin captured Jerusalem in 1187, the news rocked Europe. The story goes that Pope Urban III was so traumatized, he died of shock. Henry II of England and Philip II of France ended their dispute with each other to lead a new crusade. When Henry died two years later, Richard the Lionhearted stepped in to lead the English. The elderly Holy Roman Emperor Frederick Barbarossa also responded to the call to arms and led a massive army across Turkey. But Barbarossa drowned while crossing a river in June of 1190 before reaching the Holy Land. His death caused great grief among the German crusaders, 
Most were so discouraged that they just returned home. After driving the Muslims from the port of Acre, Frederick's successor, Leopold V of Austria and King Philip of France, left the Holy Land in August of 1191, leaving Richard to carry on by himself. Saladin failed to defeat Richard in any military engagements, and Richard secured several key cities along the coast. But the English king realized that a conquest of Jerusalem wasn't possible to his now weakened force, and in September of 1192, made a treaty with Saladin by which Jerusalem would remain under Muslim control, but allowed unarmed Christian pilgrims and merchants to visit the city. Richard then departed the Holy Land a month later. The successes of the Third Crusade allowed the Crusaders to maintain a considerable kingdom based in Cyprus and along the Syrian coast. Its failure to recapture Jerusalem led to the call for the Fourth Crusade six years later. The Third Crusade was yet another evidence of the Europeans' inability to form an effective union against the Muslims. The leaders and nobility of Europe made great promises of unity when they embarked on a crusade, but the rigors of the journey, along with the imminent prospect of victory, saw them more often than not falling out with each other in incessant and petty squabbles. On Richard's journey back to England, he was seized by the aforementioned Leopold, the Duke of Austria, whose enmity he'd incurred in the Battle of the City of Joppa. The Duke turned his captive over to the Holy Roman Emperor, Henry VI, who also had a grudge to settle. The Lionheart was released on the humiliating terms of paying an enormous ransom and consenting to hold his kingdom as a fiefdom of the empire. It's this hostage-taking of Richard the Lionhearted that forms the backdrop of the tale of Robin Hood. Saladin died in March of 1193, by far the most famous of the foes of the Crusaders. Christendom has joined with Arab writers in praise of his courage, culture, and the magnanimous manner in which he treated his foes. Historians debate how many Crusades there were. It wasn't as though Kings Henry and Philip said, hey, let's make nice and launch the Third Crusade. They didn't number them as historians have since. History tends to ascribe nine as the number of Crusades, but then add two more by assigning them with names instead of numbers. The Albigenian and the Children's Crusade, which took place between the Fourth and the Fifth Crusades. Generally, the Fifth through Ninth Crusades are considered lesser armed movements, while the first four are referred to as the Great Crusades. We'll finish with a quick review of the fourth. Innocent III became Pope in 1198. He called for the Fourth Crusade, which was the final blow that forever sundered the Western and Eastern churches, though that was certainly never his aim. In fact, he warned the Crusaders against it. Pope Innocent's plan was to simply destroy a Muslim military base in Egypt. The merchants of Venice had promised to supply the Crusaders with ships at a huge discount, one the Crusaders simply couldn't pass up. So, in the summer of 1202, they arrived in Venice expecting to sail to Egypt. But there was a problem. Only a third of the expected number of warriors showed up. And they came up with a little more than half the required sailing fee. A prince from the east offered to finance the balance under one condition. That the Crusaders sail first to Constantinople dethrone the current emperor and hand it over to him. They could then sail on their merry way to Egypt. Now, Pope Innocent forbade this diversion, but no one paid him any attention. 
and July 5th of 1203, the Crusaders arrived in the eastern capital. The people of Constantinople were by now fed up with Easterners meddling in their affairs and formed a counter-revolution that swept the current emperor off the throne, but only so they could install their own fiercely anti-Crusader ruler. Being now shut out of his hopes, the would-be emperor, who had paid the Crusaders' way to Constantinople, refused to pay their way to Egypt leaving them stranded in increasingly hostile territory. Well, the Crusaders were furious. Their leaders decided to try to make the best of it and called for a quick plundering of Constantinople. One of the Crusade chaplains proclaimed, in complete disregard of the Pope's wishes, quote, If you rightly intend to conquer this land and bring it under Roman obedience, all who die will partake of the Pope's indulgence, unquote. That was like letting a rabid dog off its chain. For many of the Crusaders, this was not only an excuse to get rich by taking loot, it meant a license to do whatever they pleased in Constantinople. On Good Friday of 1204, the Crusaders, with red crosses on their tunics, sacked Constantinople. For three days, they raped and killed fellow Christians. The city statutes were hacked to pieces, melted down. The Hagia Sophia was stripped of its golden vessels. A harlot performed sensual dances on the Lord's table, singing vile drinking songs. One Eastern writer lamented, quote, Muslims are merciful compared with these men who bear Christ's cross on their shoulders, unquote. Neither the Eastern Empire nor church ever recovered from those three days. For the next 60 years, crusaders from the Roman church ruled what was once the Eastern Empire. The Eastern Emperor established a court in exile at Nicaea. Rather than embrace the Roman customs, many Eastern Christians just fled there. There they remained until 1261, when an Eastern ruler retook Constantinople. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.